Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Bottoming. Brendan and I are not experts in mental health, um, so if you need any support, here's some spaces to visit. The first one is Mind Out. You can find them at mindout.org.uk. Switchboard LGBT, and that's switchboard.lgbt. Samaritans, you can find them at samaritans.org. Mind Charity is mind.org.uk. The Calm Zone, and you can find them at thecalmzone.net. And for any support on sexual assault, you can go to the Survivors Trust at thesurvivorstrust.org. This episode comes with a content warning and there'll be conversations around sexual assault and suicide. So this week we, we had a plan which was to do education as we episode. expressed last week. We, we did express it um, with lots of movement. Um, but slight change of plan, which it's come at a good time actually. Keeping you on your toes. Yeah. Um, we are doing the religion episode. Can I get it? Amen. No, no, seriously, can I? Can I please? Just one over here. I'll get one amen. Just one. Um, yeah, and we're going to be talking about um, so religion and what its effect can have on you as a, an LGBT individual. Um, we're not going to be covering all the religions because that's that's just crazy. <laughs> we crazy. No, no. We um. This is this is the one. It's pretty much primarily Christian and Catholicism. Yes, at, at this moment, um, because. I have a history of Catholicism. Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm technically Catholic on paper. And you're yeah. I mean, I read you as full Catholic. <laughs> read me every day. Yeah, um, rude bitch. 
Um, but super, super, super special guest. Yes. Oh my God, I can't believe <laughs> this was even a thing that we were able to do. So at the, when me and Matthew decided to actually do this, um, we spoke... Like we planned out each episode mm-hmm. and we're like, oh yeah, we could talk, look at this, look at that, look at that. And um, as soon as I knew we are going to, or uh, I expressed that I wanted to do a religion episode, I was like, I need to get Garrett Conley. I want to speak to him about Boy Raised. And did, we put it down on a piece of paper and we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's make it happen. Um, he only fucking got back to us <laughs> at the end of last year, <laughs> maybe like f- three or four days before Christmas. And just amazing we did it at i the couldn't end quite of... believe no you were on your christmas party i was on my christmas party <clears throat> a little bit drunk mm-hmm. and got the screenshot of the email reply from him and it was just so cool like calm like yeah of course i'd love to be involved and gagged yeah <laughs> i <laughs> was like the fuck <laughs> the fuck <laughs> oh but anyway, we interviewed him at the beginning of this year, and we've been sat on this interview since oh my the start God. of Jan. So all those pictures where you saw us, like, can't wait to read Boy Rays, can't wait to. <laughs> We'd already scheduled the interview, so we're, we're like buzzing behind behind closed doors. Um, but anyway, yeah, you'll hear you'll hear the whole interview, which is it was such a, an honour to mm-hmm. to speak to him actually, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, but. Before we get into the interview, mm-hmm. how's your week been? Uh, yeah, fine. I have again been trying to fight off, which I've done pretty well, uh, um, illness, which is pissing You've me right so off. You've so well. Compared to last year. Right off. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't been properly bed bound yet with the flu, but I'm just like, just trying to battle it off. Um, Fruit Ninja, that cold. Yeah, all the things. It's my birthday next week, and I might fuck being sick for it. Um but I would just first like to say the response from last episode was um, exceptionally lovely. It's not yeah. the right word. I can't find the exact word I want to use because I don't really know what I mm-hmm. want to say. But there was a lot of messages that I got that um, really warmed my soul. <laughs> they were very, very, very lovely. Um, yeah. And it still really hasn't hit me that the stuff I shared, I shared. Um, but people's messages have been been very very nice to receive mm. um so yeah just a big thank you to people that listened to last episode stuck with it for the whole time because it was a long heavy one yeah um yeah just thank you again but yeah apart from that i <laughs> and here we are yeah <laughs> you just literally just sat and listened waited for comments yeah, yeah. <laughs> twiddling your thumbs <laughs> Um, how you was your Mary, week? You saw my Queen of Scots. Oh yeah, it's crap. Yeah, oh. <laughs> it was rubbish. I'm well on the way um, to watching more films this year, though. I wanted to yeah. watch more films this year. It's been one of my New Year's resolutions, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I'm doing doing pretty well so far. Um, I know the Ben. So Ben introduced me to Letterbox. Oh yeah, uh, shout out to Ben Henry because she's such a babe. Mm-hmm. Um, introduced me to Letterbox. It's an app, and you track all your films. I've been using that. Oh, is that the app you were using? Yeah, yeah. I'm obsessed. <laughs> This isn't an advert because no, no one pays us. No one pays us any sponsorship. If you want to, people are trying to pay us to stop doing it. But <laughs> not going to happen. How was your week been? My week was good. Um, I up my hours at work, so we're slowly progressing into a more motivated and productive 2019. 19. <sighs> Let's not go back to 18, please. Um, 
I've done more baking, continued my mm-hmm. bread improvement. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start making a sourdough starter next week. Um, and other than that, yeah, that was it. We had a belated Christmas party, which which was fun. I came fourth out of 35 people at go-karting, or ho-karting, as we call it. Um, <laughs> That's so a good effort. I, I've debunked the myth that gays can drive. <laughs> Because I was, I was a pro on the track. You should have seen me. Mm. My land didn't know what hit. Drag race who? Yeah. Very, very well done. Yeah. Not quite top three. You know, you didn't didn't quite get a medal, Not but quite. Yeah. you tried. Yeah, I tried. Well done. And I look cute doing it as well. Bartiming, bartiming, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so religion I touched on bits of it last last week in the well not last week um last episode in the upbringing episode because um my mum had a had particular beliefs about um what it meant to be gay and the the lifestyle that you could have and what rules it went against based on religion so you kind of know the gist of that. Um, and I think it'd be a good place to start with us mm-hmm. saying where we stand with religion at the minute. Yeah. Who is she to you? <laughs> um, I am not very religious at all. As I say, I'm paper Catholic, went to a Catholic school. Mm. Um, I was baptised, confirmed, all mm. of the things. What are your middle names? It's either Peter or Paul. <laughs> I don't remember which. Okay, no. But so Joseph left me granddad's actual name. Mm-hmm. And then Peter slash Paul, whichever one <laughs> is, is his middle name. So oh, I've got his okay. first and his, um, and his middle name, That's TBC really on what that is. Oh, yeah. But that was the only one that I tried to push back on and not do. Because mm-hmm. obviously the rest of it you just go through with school. Mm-hmm. But I was in high school at this point and was like, do not want to be confirmed. I hate this shit. Mm-hmm. Don't believe in any of this shit. But me and my granddad were very much like, no, you should do it. Come on, it's important. And I had no excuse other than being like, I don't want to do it. Mm. I wanted to be like, I don't want to do it because I, I am gay and this is not what I want to commit myself to and the church hate me. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't at the level to say that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just not, not very religious. I've never, we're not a particularly religious family. I've got lots of quite strong views. On why I don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which is understandable. Yeah, yeah, based on based on us. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't understand why. For me personally, I've never wanted, and because maybe I knew I was gay from a very early age, I've never wanted to align myself with something that actively goes against who I am, mm. which I very much feel is is what my that's my view on the church anyway. Um, and I've never felt particularly welcome with that. Mm-hmm. I've never particularly needed to either, so it's not been like a strong battle that I've had that yeah, a, lot of, exactly. a lot of other people do. Yeah, um, I've just quite easily been able to reject it mm. from a, from a younger age. Um, and also on the topic of the stuff I talked about last episode, for me, one of the big things about the church that I really despise mm. is the whole abuse scandal that has gone on for so many years mm. um, and only really comes to light kind of every now and again. I know there's, at the moment there's a UK... Um, there's a whole scandal around the UK. Um, parts of the church are being investigated. Mm-hmm. Both films like Spotlight came out a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a whole Australian scandal. 
uh, in the 90s, I think. I can't remember what the film was called, but a lot of um, immigrant children that were sent from the UK to Australia during the war, mm -hmm. they were abused um, across the Australian church and it was all covered up and they yeah. it, priests were protected and stuff. So all of that sort of stuff I've just always felt very strongly about. Yeah. Um, There's a great film called The Keepers on Netflix. Oh, no, it's not a film. It's a documentary series mm. um, about this this nun that goes missing and she's found dead. Oh, I remember you telling me about this and, one. And, yeah, it's these badass elderly women mm. who um, are trying to track down who did it and why mm. um, because they're having these memories come back from their abuse in the church and in a, in a very highly um, Catholic or Christian school. Um in the US and yeah they're in they were in the 50s before mm. any of the memories came back but they're just like battling together trying to get answers but anyway it turns out that they 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 get confirmation that it probably happened and um but again it's the same old story where they just move them to different places and yeah. then hope that it goes away yeah um and it's ridiculous i mean there was and this is, I'm going to use this very lightly, this example, because I obviously was a lot younger, but the church that I, my school was a part of, mm -hmm. I remember our priest was called Father mm -hmm. Um And at a young age, you kind of always know someone's a little bit weird. I was always like, oh, he's a bit, a bit something a bit off about him. Anyway, yeah. um, this one summer holidays had come and gone, went back to school, and there was a new priest called Father And Father had... Um, and I use quotation marks here, had been sent to Africa to help the children. So kind of no announcement, no nothing. He'd just been sent away. Um, and then this was when I was in primary school. And I remember coming back to the confirmation years, which were later. Mm. That was when Father was still there. And Father was a very camp priest. Okay. He, I think he openly identified as a gay man, but obviously had committed himself to the church. So yeah. um, never acted on that. But he was the only person I've ever known to talk positively about being gay in the church. Mm -hmm. But I was never connected in any way. Never yeah. went to mass. So, um, but yeah, the rumours were at that point the father actually had um, had some complaints against him about some form of abuse and mm -hmm. like the whole cliche thing that goes on had actually happened and that he'd been been sent to another um, another parish still in the UK and that the whole Africa to help the children excuse. Um, was obviously bullshit and it was just another cover-up um which obviously was very close home again because it was the church not that i was active in it but the area i went to um it's just such a it's almost like a bit of a, an epidemic because it's like it happens so often mm. and they have like in spotlight how they were just kind of highlighting just mm -hmm. in the boston area and it's like how can it be so common and how do people just look look over it yeah as if it's just like oh he's gone and twisted his ankle again or like yeah, yeah, yeah. but no it's it's actual Next people's one. lives that yeah. they're affecting and the long-term effect of that um oh it's just it's horrific mm. so yeah i um i'm not very religious no i yeah i think i'm the same i don't really see i don't think i don't believe in any any particular other you know mystical thing other than um more of a universe type aspect of like i do believe in spirits and souls more energy based you yeah, think or pure. yeah yeah not not but not that there's this one person you believe and you should follow their, mm -hmm. their rules that are possibly ex too too exclusive yeah um to be a part of um 
I think that's where it gets messy when there's like certain criteria you need to mm-hmm. align to, especially when it's seen as this ever loving thing that's supposed to protect you and yeah. it determines whether you go to a good place or a bad place. Mm-hmm. But and only if like, you follow these rules. Exactly. Or we're gonna ignore these bits of the rules, but we're mm-hmm. only, yeah. And it's just it doesn't make sense to me. But I do understand that there are people who who really rely on religion mm-hmm. just to get through day-to-day life. Some people have anxiety medication, other people have prayer. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's yeah. just however, whatever way you need to cope with um, the very complicated world, you do you. But I think when it starts to affect people and mm-hmm. uh, make people feel really bad about themselves and feel like they're not good enough, feel like mm-hmm. they can't, um, be the type of person they want to be because they've been raised in a particular household. It's just, it's it doesn't make sense that it could even be an option. Yeah, because it's like you can't condition. There can't be conditions on 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 love. There needs to be a limit, doesn't there? Yeah, which I think yeah, a lot of people don't quite understand because they commit themselves fully. Yeah, um, it's like it's, it's yeah, it's quite sad. Mm. Um, do you ever find comfort in in? In, or have you ever felt comfort in, in like a religion or? Uh, no. no, I think I'm the same as you. I've always been more of like an energy, kind of like spiritual kind of a thing. Like I definitely feel something there, but I would always put it down to energy. Mm. <clears throat> um, and I was going to put it down to like the basic science lessons that you have at school and energy's never like created. It always just moves into something else. Mm-hmm. So when you die, you... <clears throat> your energy is like you obviously have a presence in some way or another at another stage yeah um i just don't believe in the story that we're told yeah um i don't believe in any sort of almighty being mm-hmm. um the only time i've actually maybe tried to connect to anything with my religion is it was when my great auntie died so it was my nan's sister mm-hmm. um and she it was the first death I'd had in my family that I'd can't that had impacted me that closely. Mm. Um and she had died and I didn't really know what to do with it. And I this is when I was in um it's either like school or college at this point and mm. so I used to kind of I'd go and just like explore Liverpool on my own. Um and I did a lot of photography as well at the time while I was at college. And I was just in town one day and we've got two cathedrals in Liverpool. We've got the Protestant and the Catholic, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Roman Catholic. And I went to both of them to just try and find any sort of connection and just see if I could see if I could feel anything with it. Yeah. Um, and I spent a couple of hours in each just kind of like exploring. And the symbolism, I think, is always is stunning. And the architecture and the spaces that are created for worship. Mm are incredible yeah around the world like there's so many fantastic beautiful spaces mm-hmm. um that i find i can connect with but that's it it's more like the energy within the space it's not the the teachings or the yeah the rest of it that people come to do in there it's more just the the energy that i felt within the spaces mm-hmm. um and i found that quite comforting at the time yeah but i think that's the only the only time before the only time since i've ever had that yeah um what about you i don't think um no i don't only when i was really young did i mistake prayer for like wishes mm-hmm. and i'd wish for certain things to to not happen or mm-hmm. like go away or 
um i'd i'd pray for to not get broken into in the house or like yeah. <laughs> just really petty things yeah um also when i when i was i would be violently sick or whatever <laughs> i'd i'd be like please no more <laughs> i can't take anymore i'll do whatever you say just just let it stop um but it but never is like um have i have i made a life decision based on mm-hmm. faith at yeah. all yeah um because of what i had i mean in school i think um we'll talk more about in the education episode but i think um it wasn't again it was like i i liked the stories of it i liked noah's ark i thought it was I loved drama when I was a kid, like yeah. the drama of like the um, whole world flooding. The Bible people... has a drama. Oh, like so much <laughs> hey. drama. And so I was just like, would, would live for these stories, which I draw in it. Yeah. I was quite weird as a kid. I used to like really draw dramatic, like mm-hmm. death scenes from like the yeah. Titanic and stuff like that, which is, I don't know if I should say this. Um, <laughs> Not like bloody or whatever, but just as a ship sinking. Because that, that image... <laughs> Of the ship in the water, like halfway through the water. I Brendan's, just found... um, Brendan's Netflix documentary comes out um, July. <laughs> this July. What made him do it? <laughs> oh. oh no. Um, anyone can slip? I don't know. I'm joking. Um, but yeah, and um, so I liked the, 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 the fairy tale aspect of it mm-hmm. because. I mean, yeah, they are kind of little fairy tales, just with morals to the stories. Yeah. I guess morals in inverted commas. Um, but uh, I forgot my point. What was I going? Well, you just made me—you just made me think that actually about the the whole the, the drama of it all. Yeah, I I really struggle with people um, putting so much faith behind this book mm. that has so many variations, and everyone takes it as the ultimate word. Yeah, and my view is always like, what happens if? I don't know, whatever the end of the world in the in the nuclear war sort of sense happens to us. There's, you know, a small select group of people managed to survive. Beautifully protected version of Harry Potter. Oh you know, it's, yeah. it's saved. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden that it, that is the the faith and people mm. believe that this was a real life story and it was written by these birds. And I'm just like, that is, that for me is why I have no belief in it. I need, I need actual proof. Mm-hmm. And there's a, only so much faith, I think, can work yeah and it, it does scare me that people can put so much behind something that they have no proof over and yeah. there's so many versions of it and yet people commit themselves so fully to it yeah um pete for me is when people say thoughts and prayers after you know some sort of mean? some sort of like huge tragic event for example like school shootings in america or whatever mm-hmm. and people just be like oh thoughts and prayers you know it can't happen again and i'm like you need action yeah. We need something to actually happen. Like, mm. thoughts and prayers don't get you shit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a nice gesture, but there's so much more you can yeah. actually do. Yeah. As opposed Real to... life action. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's important. very true. Mm. Yeah. Bartoming. Bartoming. We are... <laughs> <laughs> Buzz questions. Top three things about church. Just no descriptions. Just go, okay? Mine are the tasty bread. The theatre of the gongs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the drama of the incense and flames. Okay. Um, Go. Sure. Um, 
the smell of the Bible, the uh, the fact you can never see the organ player, but they're the most important part, <laughs> and the I'm going to match you with the drama drama of the of the day of the all yeah things of the whole thing yeah fantastic sure. <laughs> By the mm. way, mm-hmm. <laughs> one thing that till this day I parade around whenever anyone <laughs> talks about school mm-hmm. is that I got um, an A star in RE. Oh, here we go. A year early. <laughs> a fucking star. And not only that, it was the highest. <laughs> it was the highest grade in the country. <laughs> highest grade in the country. Matthew and Riley. And the exam board took my paper. And use that as the example for next year's. Stop and it. the mark, yeah, the marking grade, like the marking uh, bar. Jesus, they were like, this is a prime, a prime example of what I should be like. After Ming, after Ming, we are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so boy erased. We read it um, over Christmas, and firstly, I'm going to say for me. I've never resonated so much with another person, another gay man, that is, anyway, <clears throat> because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who you are most of the time, Matthew. <laughs> Jesus. Same. <laughs> um, because, I mean, on TV, film, I've never really seen a proper reflection of myself in another character. There have always been this gay kind of stereotype or, I mean, more recently there's starting to be people that have like fed into different shows and whatever that have provided a bit more diversity. But with this particular subject, I've never really spoken to someone or read a story or seen a story that has, um, I've found like encapsulated the same feeling I felt when I was going through that period as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of made me feel a lot less crazy and a lot less like I was, um, I shouldn't have been feeling that, but that there were, my feelings were valid. And the reason I, the reason I am who I am today is also valid. And, but that also it's not, um, it's not purely significant. Like, there's so many other people that are also out there. Mm-hmm. But this particular story, which is a memoir by Gary Connolly. Um, so Gary grew up in the Bible Belt of America. Um, his dad was a pastor and going to be ordained um, during that time. Um, but he gets outed when he goes to university and is raped by someone who is clearly super insecure. Um, but then we follow him on his journey as he goes try and tries to accept his sexuality. But during that, he goes to conversion therapy because he's completely trying to reject um, that part of himself because of where he grew up and because of his parents. Um, so he attends Love in Action, which is a conversion camp in America, um, and it was run by someone called John Smid. Um, it's a really heartbreaking story, but it's a really important one to discuss because it is still happening today. Um, I mean, only last week did they ban it in... New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still this, this uh, the Trevor Project, which is um, launched something last year, which was to 50 bills in 50 states to try and ban it completely in the US. Um, but yeah, it's so sad because there's no evidence that to support that it is, is effective in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many suicides related to it. Um, but it, it's just, it's one of those things that people just believe that you can pray away the gay, but it's not, yeah. it's not true. 
and um, <clears throat> I mean some statistics around that. So in the US, um, last early last year there was a, a report released by the Williams Institute at the University of California, um, and the report estimated that almost seven hundred thousand LGBTQ Americans between the ages of eighteen and fifty nine um, had undergone conversion therapy at some point in their lives. About three hundred fifty thousand of those received that as adolescents. Um, it also estimates that around 20,000 LGBT youths currently between the ages of 13 and 17 will be subjected to conversion therapy from a licensed healthcare professional before they turn 18. Um, an additional 57,000 will be subjected to the practice from either a religious or spiritual advisor before they're 18. So that is happening right now. Um, so last July as well, um, the UK government released the LGBT Action Plan. Um, which was a 75-point plan that was uh, released following a survey of 108,000 people. Um, and that suggested that 2% of those that completed that had undergone the practice in the UK, um, with 5% being offered it, which again doesn't seem like a huge number. But out of the 108,000 people, all of them people voluntarily completed the yeah. survey. Um, so if you think about people that tend to go through these practices that are either forced or choose to go on these they, the likelihood of them actively filling out a survey where they have to identify as LGBTQ is very low. Mm. So those numbers, the 2% and the 5%, I don't believe are anywhere close to what's actually been offered. Mm. Um, I don't know, actually, last year there was a story that broke um, in Liverpool, actually. There was a reporter who uncovered a, a practice in Liverpool and it was quite an intense uh, conversion yeah. therapy um, course in a church. But it's not like a thing that's just in the US. It's mm. not. Um, just because it's not on the NHS doesn't mean it's not happening. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's so many places where this happens across lots of different religions as well mm. um, in various ways. But it's very much still alive and kicking and it's something that doesn't need to be ended swiftly. Exactly. Um, because as you say, it does. It drives a lot of people to various states of depression, mm-hmm. um, to self-neglect, to suicide. So... Mm-hmm. It's a very important one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, here's our interview with Garrett. Apologies for the slight difference in sound quality. Yeah, we're not quite at the, um, the stage to be flying to New York for interviews yet. So, <laughs> if anyone wants to sponsor us, let us know. Yes, please, please send money our way. <laughs> Thank you. It seemed in each piece of your story, so similarly to my own, that you had a balance of the two versions of yourself and the two versions of the people that you knew and loved. Um, your parents were the protectors of your family and they were your guidance and the people you saw for um, kind of the do's and don'ts in life. Um, But they also rejected your sexuality and the future that came with that. Um, And then similarly at Love in Action, this was mirrored in that of Smid when um, he created this space which was kind of open and hopeful um, for you to be cured. And for instance, when each of you were kind of um, telling your stories um, to finish it with saying, um, we love you or I love you to that person. Um, but it was kind of heartbreaking, the damage that, ca- that came with that because you knew deep down inside that it was kind of going against what you what you knew was true about yourself. Um, so how did you balance that dichotomy of pain and care that you experienced both at home and at Live in Action? Well, you know, it's when I was writing Boy Erased, we were still very much in the Obama era and there was the sense in the air that 
that sort of humanizing these people who had done this to me would be at least an interesting literary project because I think memoir often, not always, but often um, it, it becomes very flat whenever people are, are simply um, attacking the other or, or attacking a certain group. And so it felt like a worthwhile project to look at John Smith and the way that he defined love in the past and the way that he later found love mm. um, in his future, which is not actually included in the book, but it was something that was in my mind. Yeah. Um, and then to look at my father, who I know has always um, loved me, you know, in ways that aren't easily definable. Mm-hmm. Um and and so it felt like a worthwhile project. And I remember, you know, the book came out in 2016, and then Trump was elected. And I remember thinking, like, oh, thank God I got that book out before this happened, <laughs> because I didn't want to be sort of endorsing this uh, this idea that like we just have to understand the bigots who are now destroying the country, um, which was a very popular narrative, even by the New York Times opinion you know, column. And, um, but I still stick by the idea that life is incredibly complex and that there are very few heroes and villains in any story with the exception of, you know, whenever you go up in terms of power to people like Pence or Trump, Mm. um, I think you have to scream at them. And I think often people who are a a little bit more disenfranchised, you you talk to, um, or at least you try to. And then if they aren't listening, you have to ignore them. But, um, but yeah, I just felt like any sort of project that was going to be literary. And I mean, you know, we can all define that term differently, but you can, you know, it when you see it, <laughs> like you can tell the difference between reading like uh, something that Mary Carr writes as a memoirist versus, um, and I won't name any names, but versus a lot of memoir that's out there, or you can take that wonderful memoir that, that was published this year, educated, which is written in like a beautiful complex language, um, of, of love. And I think that, uh, that's what I wanted to be involved in. And it was incredibly hard to come by because, you know, you have to really go back to how you define love at the time it was over a decade had passed since I'd gone into love and actions doors. Um, and, and that version of love that I had was very skewed and I think incomplete, but it was something that, um, I'd been taught actually by the Bible and by, um, my father and my mother. And it was very confusing to me to suddenly have a definition of love that I knew to be correct. And I knew to have, that I had inherited from my parents being used in some ways against me. Um, this idea that, that I wasn't loving in the right way or that I didn't really know that I was angry at my father and that I should have, you know, hated him in order to be cured. All of those ideas were new to me because my parents had always, you know, it's funny. There are some contradictions in, in fundamentalist Christianity, which is like that history of Protestantism in the U S came from uh, an intense uh, sense of freedom and, and personal responsibility, which was then 
at various points, I mean, not to say that it was ever a pure endeavor, but at various points, it's morphed into something that is very dangerous and very much groupthink. Um, and, and so I was raised within a tradition of, of being told, hey, you've got to have a personal relationship with God and no one can tell you whether or not that relationship is valid. Only you can tell yourself that. And that was a very valuable not not a completely uncomplicated idea, but I thought it was a pretty valuable idea to say, like, I define love on my own terms. So when my parents sent me to this place that defined love as hating yourself or as hating others, um, it was very shocking to me to see that. So I guess, I don't know if that really answers your question, but there was just always from the beginning this idea that the project had to involve these multiple definitions of love coming up against each other and not necessarily having a tidy conclusion. Because I think if, if my book were able to answer what is love, um, then I would, you know, I would have already won like a Nobel prize. Um, <laughs> Cause no one's been able to do it. Uh, so I, I just wanted to like continue that definition or that, that project of defining love um, but in maybe a new environment that a lot of people on the outside hadn't met before. I think for a lot of people that don't understand religion or um, maybe you don't have, come from a religious background might not understand how much it means to certain people within that and how the relationship with God or religion and almost a separate relationship with your parents or your family how those two, when they bump up against each other, there's no kind of, yeah, clear route um, to happiness or to um, uh, to f- identity, really, in, in a sense. Um, and I think, yeah, the way you kind of talked us through in the book um, and explained those different parts, I thought was, yeah, re- really fantastic. Thank you. Um, but, yeah, so um, it was really interesting to read... Um, about you and your father's relationship because I think it was really lovely to read those cherished memories um, and the time you spent working for him. He seems obviously like a very devoted and respected man. What struck a chord with me most, though, was when he took you to the local jail with Wild Thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no one about that, so I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I will say as a sidebar that I think the way you, you the perspective you have on, on this, um, this, I think probably because the time a lot of time has gone since um, it happened. Um, But the fact that it does have almost this sense of um, dark humor in it, in terms of the way you frame these different uh, memories. Um, And again, yes, the fact that they say uh, ready to save some souls just felt very like um, heroes of the South, which it, it did make me laugh despite it. Obviously then they were being very serious about the fact that they were going to save these people. Yeah. Um, but how did it feel, especially on that uh, trip to jail and um, when you were, he was handing you the, the M&Ms to hand out to the, um, to the prisoners, how did it feel to be almost lumped into that same category? Um, I mean, I had, I had visited my father on these door-to-door proselytizing missions. So my dad, he had a lot of, he's a very inventive person. He's actually trying to invent something right now. Um, and he was like, you know what we need to do? We need to go to everyone's door. And if someone's not there, 
let's leave a one of those like you know how whenever you're in a hotel you can like leave a please do not disturb sign outside and it like hooks onto the doorknob he was like let's bring that but let's put like a bag of popcorn glued onto it and he would be like that'll make people want to go to church because we gave them something free and and so you know i i sort of cringed at that idea but i knew that my dad felt like they had to do anything they could to save these souls. And so I would go along with him and do that. I was never very good at it. But I remember in this specific instance of going to the jail, the Sharp County Jail, um, he, it was within the context of him, you know, signing me up for conversion therapy. We're in this waiting, this sort of holding pattern of pretending like everything's normal. Um, and, I was still in a fallout period from, from experiencing rape. And, um, and my dad is like telling me to go to this jail. I'd never been invited before. And so the subtext of this visit for me was like, let me show you how dangerous this is, where you could end up if you don't act right and, um, how to be a man. And so all of these things were going through my head. Like he never said it directly, but it was pretty obvious that that's what he was doing. And, um, and so, you know, we're, we're going, we're driving over there and he's like, by the way, I do this little thing with the, uh, with the, uh, what do you call them? Inmates. And he was like, I, uh, I, tell them that they need to memorize at least two Bible verses. And every time they do that, I give them a handful of M&Ms. And I was like, okay, does that really work, dad? Um, and he was like, yeah, I mean, it gives us something to look forward to. They don't really get all this, you know, good candy very often. Um, and I just remember thinking like, I, I, I just felt so sad for these men who seemingly really sort of worshiped my father as this great beacon of light um, from the outside world. And, and they were so deferential toward him. I mean, it was just insane. I once, I've never mentioned this before because it's just like so insane that I don't even like to talk about it, but he, like whenever he, I moved to college, there was a, or no, I was moving to a house while I was at college because I was staying with some other people. And he brought along one of his workers from Conley Ford, the, the dealership that I worked at. And, and his worker was this black man who was so deferential and like constantly saying like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Over and over again, that I felt so uncomfortable, and I actually moved most of the furniture myself because I was just like, "This is very much old South scary stuff that's going on here." Um, and and there was just this sense in all of the inmates that my father was this uh, savior, and I remember feeling really creeped out by that. And I think that was sort of. I mean, I think it's dangerous to trace your memories and, and search for like the moment whenever you're starting to leave behind some sort of cult or or some sort of, you know, saying you have a defining moment through an image. But, but I do remember watching these inmates and seeing how sad they were and how deferential they were and thinking like there's something really wrong here. You know, he's trying to feed their souls, but... 
it feels more like they're being told that they're worthless. Um, even though he was never saying that, it just felt like that. And and then, of course, there are echoes of that that I intentionally placed in my conversion therapy sessions in the book um, because we were inmates basically being told, like, if you just do this, you get some candy. And then after a while, you might get out. Um, and then we, all, we were supposed to act completely deferentially towards the the leaders. I mean, growing up, the environment in which you're brought up can really shape who we are and where, obviously, it's quite clear, um, and who we are and who we will become. Um, but for me, a lot of what I felt at home um, came from assumption. Um, for example, because I had... I had private conversations with my mother where she'd um, drive me around and kind of say, ask me all these questions about what I was doing or where I was going and um, kind of talking to me about um, conversations she'd had with her friends who were in the parish and things like that and what they thought about it. Um, obviously trying to get across that this is how she felt about it as well. Um, but because she, those conversations remained private, I just assumed that those um that my family, the rest of my family thought that way. Um, but I guess for you in the Bible Belt of America, this, um, everyone was kind of so openly um, in the, had the same beliefs as your parents. Um, for uh, the benefit of the listeners, your therapist was telling you to repress um, your feelings and your family doctor found justification, your mo- mother's worries. Um, so can you let's explain a little bit about that environment and how it felt for you before and after coming out. Cause I think that's yeah. interesting. I mean, there, there was definitely a sense that we don't talk about homosexuality very much, very openly. Although, you know, when a news story would come up, the church that I was in would, would always comment on it. Like, like during the Matthew Shepard beating and, and, the, and his death, um, a lot of people were like, well, yeah, there was an undertone of he deserved it, which is really sick. Um, but it, it was also, in a sense, a warning. Like, this is what happens whenever you choose to live your quote-unquote lifestyle. Um, and so, that, but like outside of those moments, people didn't really talk about it. So, you know, you can bet my parents weren't going around advertising the fact that I was going into conversion therapy. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, something that's not in the movie that I think should have been is the fact that I was going to conversion therapy a week before my father was ordained as a Baptist pastor. So, you know, he'd been a preacher, but he was going to be ordained, which means like you're, you're official now. Um, and in order to do that, it's like they do kind of a, an unofficial background check and they make sure everything in the family is, you know, up to speed for, for God's purpose. And this, this idea is incredibly patriarchal. Uh, and the idea that like the, the head of the household is responsible for the women and children in his household. So if anything's out of line, it's because the head of the household has done something wrong. Um, so that, you know, I'm, I'm being shipped off to camp in the hopes that I can be presentable and never act on my feelings. Um, 
so so they weren't telling anyone that this was happening. They were trying to keep it a secret at all costs. That's why my dad didn't go to Memphis with me, and my mom did instead. It was like billed as some sort of trip we were taking, um, which ironically, like <laughs> two weeks after, as a side note, but two weeks after my conversion therapy, my mom took me to Hawaii as like this actual guilt trip that she had. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote an essay about that, but um, you know they were keeping it a complete secret, and that there was, you know, I've I've talked to a lot of different communities, like minority communities, where people have had a version of conversion therapy, but um, it just wasn't called that, and and I recognized a lot of the same traits, like sometimes conversion therapy, even within. The, the white communities that I grew up in, um, they would take place between, you know, a pastor and a member of the church. And it would just be one conversation saying like, listen, you know, we have several members who have, have told us that they have these feelings. You just don't act on it. Um, and that's a, that's a, a form of conversion therapy in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, like, I, I don't think that our childhoods were that different. I think that maybe the big difference was that um, there was always, always, always a discussion of the state of your soul and um, and sort of whether or not you're right with Jesus and whether or not you're saved. And that was, and also, you know, whether or not we were in the end times, which everyone believed we were. So there was a lot of that going around. And as a result of having that in the air all the time, um, a kid growing up LGBTQ uh, would necessarily feel threatened and feel as though uh, revealing one's sexuality would end in something pretty terrible. It's actually, it's so pervasive in the world. You know, I mean, I think... People tend to forget that there are, you know, dozens of countries that not only make um, being LGBTQ illegal, but also um, commit people to the death sentence. And, you know, my husband is Pakistani, and if he goes back to Pakistan, he could be punished by, like, executed. Um, and so there, like, I think that there's a tendency to say like this crazy stuff is happening in the South and America. And that's true. It's also, you know, I also live a few blocks away from a, uh, an adult conversion therapy counseling center in New York city. There are two of them that I know of, um, in San Rafael, California, 17 or 18 miles from San Francisco, the hub of LGBTQ equality in the country is where love and action began. Um, so there, there's a, there's a myth, a pervasive myth, I think within our community, um, that, you know, one just needs to escape one's town or like, you know, it's, it's not happening everywhere, but it actually is. And I, I think it's a bit of a hidden epidemic. Yeah. But at the same time, I guess it's finding those um, the pockets where you can thrive. Which, oh yeah, yeah. And there's a reason I live in New York. Yeah, <laughs> not in Arkansas right now. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. So I got um a little bit angry while reading um, around the one six one mark. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't at you, uh, but it was at the the weight of faith and power. 
that um, faith had over you, steering you in the opposite yeah. direction of happiness um, for reasons that I don't think I'll under- understand purely because I think when I was growing up, I knew in my mind or I felt in my mind that um, I just didn't believe believe what I was being told. And I think depending on who brought you up or whatever might might determine um, how much of an effect it has on you. Um, and I guess the Bible Belt, being in the Bible Belt, might have, an, have had that effect as well. Um, but, yeah, when it came up in discussions about being a gay man, um, I would get more angry at my mother for not seeing past the religion aspect and not kind of seeing past that and just looking at me as a person instead of that. Um, but I guess my question is, how did you keep your faith in the face of so many others of the same religion telling you that what you felt wasn't natural? Well, you know, I think um, I'm glad that you got angry because one of the difficulties of reconstructing these memories was truly placing myself back within that faith. Um, Because I don't, I don't identify as Christian and I, I definitely don't know where I lie in terms of faith, but I, I know that I remain open to the idea of God, just not like some old white dude sitting on a throne. Um, just because I think I'm too curious and, and stubborn to like totally shut down any idea. Yeah. But, um, but in reconstructing that past, I really had to honor who I was and, and the struggles of people who, you know, are being told constantly by culture, like, just leave, just, just leave it. What do you have to lose? Yeah. Um, you know, there's this, there's always a celebratory coming out in pop culture. And I think that that is wonderful and that it gets better project is great, but, but it's also only one side of a coin. Um, and I think that the story that's not always told is like why people persist in illogical, um, thoughts, you know, why why did they stick with what they know when they know that's killing them? Mm. Um, and I find that to be a very fascinating topic and it's actually like part of my novel that I'm writing and everything. And, and, um, and I think, you know, I had to make people feel that frustration while reading um, because it's like <laughs> there are so many moments where it looks like I'm going to change or I'm going to I'm going to just yeah. say fuck all of this and move on. Um, and I don't. And even at the very end, it's almost frustrating that I'm like, well, I'll believe my father then, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> But I, but I knew that if I didn't tell the truth, that it would come off as false, however frustrating the truth might be, and however many readers I might lose by, by that page number. Um, and I remember my editor once said to me, like, it, it reads like you're circling a drain, and you just never completely fall through the drain. And I was like, great, that's what I wanted it to read like. Yeah. Um, and and I could have, you know, there was a lot of pressure actually to to create a sort of false ending, um, to do the whole. I'm in New York now, and everything's great, and I've got a great life, and and there are absolutely no scars. <laughs> um, but I knew that by doing that, I would be not only doing a disservice to my own story, but also um, to the people who were still in this type of thinking and. 
I've become really close friends with a lot of survivors since the book and the movie came out. And one guy, he wouldn't mind me mentioning him on here because he does a lot of advocacy work. Adam Tremor. Um, he, he just sort of like, he lives in Virginia and it's, it's just kind of the middle of nowhere. And the way that he talks about the people around him, you know, he just, it's so frustrating to me because I'll say like, you know, he, he went to a, I think a screening of the movie and he did a talk afterwards. And a lot of people who were seemingly liberal were like, well, you know, don't you think we've had enough discussion about this? Like, why, why do you have to have so many rights and things like this? What? Why do you have to have a parade? And, you know, that age old argument of like, well, do you have to flaunt it? You know? And I was so mad on his behalf and I was like, you should have told them to fuck off. And he was like, he was like, have you forgotten what it's like to live there? You don't say fuck off. You just smile the Southern way and you go, I'm sorry that you have that thought. (laughs) Um, And I was like, he's going to be so much more effective because he's like speaking their language. And I'm just like, infuriated um and you know who knows if that actually works but but i did really want to honor the fact that so many people are on this trajectory and some of them never leave Mm. their love of the town that that they grew up in or the love of the people um who in some cases abuse them and i don't i don't think it's just stockholm syndrome i think that it's something more profound than that um and it's almost inexplicable, but I did want to honor the fact that I was one of those people once. I may not be that person now, but I was. And I think that that's an interesting and worthwhile perspective to show. I guess moving on from that, um, and in the same vein, actually, when you, you kind of consider what your, your, your how your faith drove you, um, it's quite interesting when you talk about this gay-friendly community and not feeling as though... Um, you could run to it in fear of losing your family, describing it as being the worst in suicide. Um, I've got a quote here. I somehow knew that leaving my family behind would destroy whatever love I hadn't already thrown aside to make room for shame. Um, so I also felt the same sense of displacement growing up. Could you expand um, on this feeling and whether you would have done anything differently to explore it? <laughs> in the age of social media, because obviously it was 2004 before any kind of Instagram or um, Twitter. Yeah, I think, I think that my story could have been very different Mm -hmm. uh, had I grown up during this age. Uh, Because first of all, there are communities that are very um, informative and, uh, you know, like, like back then, if I, if I Googled conversion therapy, the sites that would come up would be pro conversion therapy, Yeah. you know, and, and it would be like, this is what you should do. Um, if someone were to Google conversion therapy right now, they would get the born perfect project and they would get my memoir and things like that. Um, so so you would automatically, like on your first search, let's say my parents are sitting down to research this, like casually, mm-hmm. um, they would see the harmful effects first. Yeah. And so you have to dig for the the sort of backwoods Christian stuff uh, that goes on. 
Um, and so, so I think that would have changed my whole trajectory and maybe prevented all of this from happening in the first place. Um, mm. that's not to say that coming out would have ever been easy with these parents, nice. uh, but, but I think it would have been a different experience. I also think there's a little bit of a, of another myth that the internet has saved us from misinformation. And we've learned that, you know, in the past couple of years, um, with some of the crazy conspiracy theories that become presidents. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I think that there, you know, a lot of people who are within these communities that are very closed, even if they have the internet, even if they know where to look, it's like the internet and the world that it espouses is sort of fantasy for them. I can remember this because I would watch, um, I think I watched like Queer as Folk whenever I was like a a few times when I was a teenager and I remember thinking like, okay, that's first of all terrifying because I've never seen anything like that before. And second of all, um, that's a fantasy. That's like not something that I could ever see in my life. Um, and, and so, you know, I was able to sort of create this dichotomy in my brain between what was fantasy and what was reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that happens a lot because I have, I have friends who've never come out um, who are still in Arkansas and really there's, there's like no reason they can't in some ways, because we now live in a world where it's not going to be the end of the world for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they still haven't. And there has to be a reason for that. And I think, you know, when you visit those towns again, oh my God, you can feel it the minute you enter the town. Um, and, and when I went to, I remember I was like just trying to have a normal family outing. Um, I think it was maybe two Christmases ago. Um, and we were watching the, that latest star Wars movie, whatever my dad could watch that didn't have a lot of cursing in it. Um, and I went to the bathroom and this guy like who was at the urinal, like shook his dick at me. And then he was like, do you want this faggot? And I was like, first of all, (laughs) you're definitely closeted. Second of all, like, I can't believe that was the first time I've heard that. Um, and it, it was almost as if the, like, the atmosphere had shifted. I don't know if it was because of Trump or because they knew that this movie was going to come out, but um, it, I definitely had never encountered encountered such obvious verbal abuse. Yeah, um, which may be shocking to you because you read that book, but people didn't just go around screaming "faggot" at somebody. Um, they did it in other ways, and and so to hear it suddenly you know, when I'm 31, uh, it was a shock to me. And it, it told me that like, yeah, we can have all this progress and, and kids can have these safe spaces online, but what's going to protect that kid whenever he hears that? Mm. Now, what is the internet really going to protect him from that? I don't know. Yeah. It's definitely going to help, I guess, <laughs> but it's a, it's a dangerous thing. It is. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of um, fours and against with this. And I think um, me personally, I think um, our stories actually kind of ran parallel. I think when I came out, it was 2005. Um, yeah. And it, again, in a way, it's like when you, 
look at things on the computer when it was around that time, I would just assume that everyone knows exactly what I'm doing. So I would always be really yeah. <laughs> um, looking at history and I'd always be really paranoid. Um, but I guess with people with phones and things, it does make it a lot easier to just quickly look on these different and have different profiles that are kind of fake or whatever. But um, again, yeah, it, it can have that backlash of um, feeling more isolated because you... Well, yeah, and I mean, I on the internet, I've stopped checking Twitter, you know, for stuff about borders because it's too intense to read all that stuff. But but at the beginning, when I was checking when the movie came out, there were so many people who were like, so many kids who were like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and they were like, I I just wish my parents could go see this movie with me, um, but I know they won't. And, like, I could see some real sorrow in that, like, just, you know, almost desperation for, for that to be the movie that could make their parents go, you yeah. know, change their mind. And, and of course, the movie was made in that way. It was actually very toned down in certain ways so that it could appeal to those parents. Um, but But at the same time, I saw in that desire this this kind of longing that I had when I was a kid yeah. um, that that something from the outside would magically make everything better and I I don't think that the internet does that I think that it helps a lot and it it can even prevent suicide in many ways but um, but it's not a magical pill it doesn't solve everything so when you first met David, he said, um, he asked you the question, um, what would you, if you're a superhero, what would you do? Would you have uh, invisibility or power of flight? Um, and you answered invisibility. Um, and there's a quote here that says, in taking on the power of invisibility, I had also given up my voice. And that rang true with me because um, uh, what I wrote to my mother a couple of years ago um, I'd wrote something similar in in a sense of because I guess when you're in that period of um, repression, I guess um, you and you kind of are, are weighing up all of the pros and cons or, or all of the different things that are going to happen. Or when you're in it, you can't really. Um, it's hard to find the words to fight back, and almost. Um, you can't really even articulate what's going on because there's a lot of secrecy involved. Who would you tell? Who would like, who would listen? All these different types of things. Um, and I guess having that separation of um, like the ten, 10 years looking back for you and um, similar to me now, actually, um, it's the perspective of and, and um, the, uh, the realisation and separation to kind of say, oh, yeah, this actually happened and this is how I felt. Um, I mean, in that time, how did you how did you come to find your voice in those nine years? Mm, that question almost makes me cry. Because, <laughs> like, it's I just I just remember how much work it was. Yeah. Um, well, I read a lot um, because you know when I I mentioned this in the book in my high school they didn't even teach evolution they didn't even teach us about Darwin. Mm. Um, so at first it was exhilarating to suddenly have the freedom to read whatever I wanted to. Yeah. 
And and the thing about books that's so wonderful and continues to this day to be wonderful is that parents and people around you don't tend to really scrutinize what you're reading. Books don't have, um, like people don't fear the power of books, which is funny because they should, um, but, but they don't fear it in the way that they fear, you know, video games or, or film. Um, it seems like they don't believe that it has any value. So, um, so I was able to sort of just like read whatever I wanted to growing up. And in those places, I was able to sketch together a sort of fantasy life that I never dreamt could be real. You know, I, I read stories that were complex and really looked at flawed people as human beings and didn't try to um, label their actions as sinful or holy, you know, and, and all of that was sort of building up in my mind so that the minute I decided to leave conversion therapy and my mom took me out, it was like, Oh, I can go over here. I'm going to go over here with these people who like have already sketched a way for me to see the world as gray and not black and white. Um, and that wasn't easy, but at first it was exhilarating. And then slowly as I began to read more and more, I just, I realized how far behind everyone else I was in terms of my education and in terms of um, understanding the world, because it was like I'd been taken out of a cult. It was like my worldview was completely different and I lost who I was in a way before leaving conversion therapy. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I ended up after being in college and having like a steady string of really unhealthy relationships. Uh, I, I went into Peace Corps and lived in Ukraine for three years and taught HIV AIDS training in a really small village of about 2000 people. Um, and you know, while I was there, I was reading all sorts of stuff. Like every night I read like all of Dostoevsky and like, um, you know, everyone that I could get my hands on. And I remember I brought, this is absurd, but I would take, whenever I would visit back home, I would just take the entire collection of the great book series, like instead of clothes, I would just like line my entire suitcase with great books, books. Um, and so I read like all the classics while I was there in Ukraine. And, um, and then I also you know, I would go to the churches there and I would experience something that was so different. I mean, it was Eastern Orthodox, so it was still Christian, but the services looked so different and people acted so different that I was able to sort of see the symbolism of the church in a different way and sort of almost as though I were deconstructing what religion was. I was able to do that. Um, first of all, because I was reading, you know, like Dostoevsky, <laughs> and then then you're going to these places and and looking at how people do things so differently, and you're like, oh, like the sign of loving God does not have to exist in the form of raising your hands up and closing your eyes, um, or like bending down at an altar. It can take the form of an old babusia, like kissing the stone floor. <laughs> So it just, it like cracked open my mind in terms of like seeing how religion was more of a, a sort of um, cultural heritage that could, that could take different forms in each culture. Um, and then after that, I did a, a degree in queer studies 
and then I started writing. And like all of that was, I just remember feeling so frustrated that I wasn't smart enough to understand what had happened to me. And I, I really think I spent those 10 years just trying to not escape my past, but get to a place where I could stand away from my past and look at it from a safe distance. Mm. One that wouldn't draw me back in because when I would visit back home, I would become so terrified. Like I would stay at home for, let's say, you know, five days and I would be okay. But if I stayed at home for 10 days, it was like, Oh no, what if I never left? And what if this is just me being stuck here forever? It was almost like a sci-fi experience because you start to fall back into your old patterns. I knew that if I was going to write this, if I was going to really write it truthfully and with all the pain that I, that I experienced looking back on it, if I wasn't going to go insane, I had to have a vantage point that was educated and with enough ammunition to protect me from that past. When it came to write the book and um, relive all of these memories, how um, how did you approach conversations with your parents? Because I know um, you mentioned really briefly about um, being in, in the dining room or something with your mum with the recorder um, and her having to take breaks and things. And um, like, what, what, what was that like? Well, it was insane. Cause I, my mom was actually vacationing in Florida with her sister, my aunt. And I was like, Hey, what if I just flew down there and hung out for a few days? And she was like, yeah. <laughs> so I go down there and just sort of get the idea to record her. And, and to hear her whole story. And um, my mom is not one to shy away from from speaking. Um, <laughs> like, she she definitely, like, held her own against Nicole Kidman whenever they were on stage together. But, um, like, she just, she went into this five-hour story. I still have it on my computer because I just recorded it because it was so amazing. Yeah. Um about like you know from the age of 16 marrying my father to to taking me to conversion therapy and when I got that whole story that was sort of the moment when I was like oh I can write this story because there's there's a dimension to it that interests me like I didn't just want to write a story that was just my torture like that's not interesting to me personally I mean I was going to do it for the benefit of the story and for the benefit of readers but I also wanted to be able to take a breather every now and then and sort of make a broader statement Mm. so you know that part in the book that's kind of weird structurally where it begins section two and it's like imagining my mom looking at the brochures Mm -hmm. um that was like done out of sheer frustration because I was just like I cannot continuing to write this torture porn. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I'm going to like get my mom's story. And yes, it's tragic, but it's not mine. Yeah. Uh, and there was something like whimsical about doing, you know, going out of first person yeah. and like doing her like the close third person. Um, and then occasionally putting my own first person back into yeah. it. And that was kind of fun. Um, and then, like, I had to sort of distract myself. Um, when I was talking to my dad, 
I had to pretend like I was uh, investigating someone else's life or looking at it from some other perspective. And I kept thinking to myself, like, you have to do this because you're never going to be able to tell the whole story. And it's going to suck if you don't get this. Um, and so when dad started talking about, you know, his childhood and, and being abused and the, the situation where he got burned that was when i was like oh yeah okay so we've got the angle from mom and now we've got the angle from dad and even though that doesn't completely explain their behavior i I hate you know one-to-one explanations of characters and books like because he was in a fire um this is why he turned out to be so extreme Or, you know, because my mom married at 16, this is why she listened to men. Um, I find those explanations to be too pat. But I did want to offer a a greater depth to their character that readers could be sympathetic toward. um, Because I just didn't want them to be able to write off those people so easily. With John Smith, the guy who ran the camp, I was much less interested in that. (laughs) I was like, well, if people do want to write him off, that's okay. Because, <laughs> um, I'm not going to sit here and like try to humanize this guy too much. Yeah. Although I did, you know, in the end, I did end up doing that quite a bit. Um, but, but like, I was just less interested in, in that because he was a simpler character. Yeah. And so like, you know how, like whenever people write like mystery or thrillers, like the really bad mystery novels or the really bad thrillers are the ones where like the villains are just complete psychos because you're just like, there's no character here. Like there's no development. Um, And I, sometimes I felt that way about Smith where I was like, I don't know how to humanize him because I think he's completely insane. (laughs) So (laughs) I still think that, and I now see the humanity in him, but I still think he's like, Definitely got some stuff going on. <laughs> Listening to um the podcast episode, I was just I, I was just, I was like stunted for for a good few minutes. I was just like I just don't understand. Um, yeah, I just don't understand the entire process, and I think right. one um such extremes like each time. Um, it, yeah, it, I just it just bewildered me. I know. I mean, I was listening to that. Like, so I didn't go down there on that trip with Jad Evanrod to to visit with him for two days. But like, I hadn't heard any of the material, and Jad was like, "It's so illuminating." <laughs> and then when I listened to it, I was like, "I'm not. I have. There's no illumination here for me. I'm still very confused about this man." <laughs> but like, I could see the humanness there. I could see his humanity. But I couldn't see, like, it was like, I could only see the version of Smith who had become sane. And I couldn't understand the version of him that had been like, now I'm going to marry a woman and now I'm going to get divorced. And now I'm going to live openly as a gay man and help other young gay men. And now I'm going to renounce all that. Like, it just didn't, it's too extreme for me. <laughs> um, I will say quite quickly, actually, you said um, um, your editor described uh, the book as like falling down a drain, but never fully going down a drain. Um, but I guess speaking about your mother's journey, um, I feel like the whole time I was waiting for her to fall down the drain almost. And when 
um, you had that moment in the car with the airbag and she was kind of like, oh, are you going to kill yourself? That to me was like such a relief for her to say those words because I was like, you're finally getting how damaging it yep. is. And I was just like, for me, I was like, that's that's the book done for me. I'm like, that, that's because I think forever I was kind of waiting for my for my mum to have that realisation as, as well. And I was like, for her to read that, I was like, oh, that's, although it was such a heartbreaking moment and for it to get to that, to that extreme and yeah. for you both to be in that position, but to, to just, to, to reach that, to, to that point, I was just like, oh my gosh. Well, I think she felt that, you know, the movie reverses this order, which, you know, you have to take license with different art forms, but in the book, you know, it's the fact that we escaped that Peabody hotel and had dinner together, like our old selves that I imply is the reason she reached that point because she sees like, Oh, here's my son acting like a normal human being and happy. And, and there he is the next day acting like he wants to kill himself. Mm. Um, and she was also experiencing that. Like she was going back to that hotel and just lying on that bed. She'd pull the comforter all the way over her entire face and like stay in her clothes, stay in her makeup and then cry all day and then clean herself up and then come pick me up. And that's no way to live either. Yeah. And I think that she saw the future as that. And, um, and it was like, it's not good for either of us. And, and I think, you know, it's an important step to show what a normal life can look like. Yeah. Um, and that's what bothers me so much. It, it continues to bother me today about my father because, you know, I've invited him to meet my husband, Shahab. I've, in, I've said like we could come there, et cetera. And he just cannot get to that point. And I'm like, until you get to that point where you can see how like happy I am, you're not going to ever agree. Yeah. Like not totally. You know, if he saw my daily life here, which is I go for a run, I write for hours, I read the rest of the day, like that's it. And like I have, I make dinner for my husband. We have a great dinner. We usually watch someone on TV and then go to sleep. Like that's my life. <laughs> what is so terrifying about that? You know, it's crazy. It's like the most boring life ever, <laughs> but I love yeah, it. <laughs> absolutely. And so you should. But um, moving on to mental health. So, in the year after um, after all of this, you alluded to the fact that you needed to repress memories of your time at Love and Action, and you and your mother refer to this time as the lost year or the year of the body snatchers. Um, as much as this was like the coping mechanism for you, um, could you explain what that felt like? You kind of you mentioned it a little bit, but um, how it felt like for you as a gay man. Um, but also as Garrett Connolly, because I think it's quite interesting um, to think about being a gay man and it having these certain expectations within our own community. But then also it's it's so different and what it means to you and your own identity. Yeah, I think, you know, like I said, there were a lot of relationships that were unhealthy and I think I entered into them 
as someone who was not really willing to commit because I was terrified of of what that would mean for my life and whether or not it would fit together with my family. Yeah. But I lived in that for a long time. And then, uh, I mean, I just, I think we can all cringe about much of our early 20s. Um, but I, I cringe whenever I think about, like, how flippant I was about everything, where I'm just like, oh, yeah, like, if someone would ask, you know, where'd you grow up? What'd you do? Sometimes I would just say like, I went to conversion therapy. It didn't work the end. Um, like that, was, <laughs> that would not have been a good book. Huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that was my story. And that was the one I'd flattened it into this thing that was digestible, that didn't upset anyone at the table that made everyone comfortable and let me know that I was just as good a cynical gay as anybody else. Uh, and and I think that there is a real, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like I, I too take solace in the fact that much of our community can celebrate camp and queerness and cattiness even, and like, you know, whatever sarcasm that we can manage to come up with as a weapon against like a really ridiculous society that we live in. Um, but I also see that, in my life, I used that and and the sense of superiority. Uh, um, I used those things as ways to to sort of block off my past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I would enter, you know, Arkansas again, I would just become that kid again. And it was so jarring to see the two versions of that person still living inside of yeah. me. Uh, I mean, ironically, I think the like the boy being erased is really like. I I was the one who totally erased that boy in the mm-hmm. end because I was just like, there's no more. I'm not going to be that person anymore. Um, I'm going to be smart and I'm going to be better than everybody else at everything. Yeah. Um, and that was just, especially when I was in grad school, I, I, I don't think I was obvious about it, but like when I would be in a class, if somebody hadn't read the material or they didn't have the same understanding as I did, I would grill them and dress them down in public in class, just like a real asshole. Um, and I'd be like, why are you even wasting our time? Um, because I felt like it was life or death for me. Like that's how intensely I felt that I had to learn everything. And it was like a hunger that could not be satiated. Um, and then like the minute you start to relax that beast, you're, you just like are this mess of a person because you haven't been dealing with everything that's been clogged up behind that. Um, so that was the real form of suppression for me is like, I was becoming this sort of robot. And I remember, I mean, it, it sounds so dramatic, but I actually had this moment I was I was graduating from getting my queer studies degree and my professor who had taught me so much and she was this fierce lady who'd like battled against sexism her whole life to do like 18th century feminist studies. And um and she came up to me and she goes, If you don't become a queer theorist, I will stop talking to you. And I was like she was like, This is your path, you have a talent for it, you should do it. And 
I was like, well, I'm going to be a creative writer. <laughs> and she was like, why are you wasting your brain? And I was like, you'll be apologizing for saying that later. <laughs> and, and she did email me not too long ago, but, um, I like, I just felt like that I had to heal myself. And the only way I could do it was not choosing the thing that came easiest to me. Like, you know, I, I think that there's just a way, especially I see it on online so often, especially on Twitter, there's a sort of surface level queer theory that gets um, a lot of traction in a lot of magazines these days. And it, it stems from anger and, and not depth. And um, it, it just feels very, very much like that version of me that I could have become uh, had I stuck with it. And and I just, it's not that to say that that's a wrong type of, like there's nothing wrong about writing stuff that's um, angry or, or rightfully calls out straight people for being idiots. But um, I just don't think that that carries the same kind of depth that I wanted. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, a lot of people have told me like, you know, you should stick with the thing that you're really good at. And that was queer studies, um, queer theory. And and I just didn't want to do it. But I think the reason I turned to that was because I thought this will keep everything at bay. If I can say, if I can use an argument that that goes over everyone's head um, and secures my in crowd instantly, then I'll have everything I've ever wanted. I've got complete security. Um, and then, I mean, I was shocked, honestly, when I wrote my book, I, I wasn't writing it, you know, for the masses, I wasn't writing it for anyone really other than myself and like people like me. And I was using the language that I thought was necessary to write it. Um, and then whenever it became a movie and like people were going to my story from that, I was suddenly placed in pop culture. And that was very surprising. Like what I encountered there because I just wasn't ready. Like I wasn't ready to, um, to deal with the fact that I still had some of these barriers up. Like I was still hiding in my own corner. Like, like, Oh, like I know a certain type of reader will like my book and I already respect that reader and we're going to hang out over here. And like, maybe this will allow me to write another book, but this is all I want. And whenever those barriers went down and it became popular, um, it was like, oh, no, I have to deal with, like, my snobbishness. <laughs> like, I have to deal with the fact that, like, people are coming to me just, like, crying because they see something. Uh, they're not talking about the sentences. They're talking about their lives. And and even though I'd done, like, you know, Peace Corps volunteer stuff and all, and I had, like, this activist stance, um, it was very shocking to see that I still carried some of that security with me, if that makes any sense. So, obviously, there's no wonder why the book was such a success. Um, we're both very excited for the movie. Um, but in getting a lot of attention, it has shined a much-needed light on the entire concept of conversion therapy, for instance, in Last year, um, the Trevor Project launched 50 Bills in 50 States campaign to end conversion therapy. Um, so how does it feel to see your book um, that you only initially intended to um, do for yourself um, have such impact? Well, it's like the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't think that books could still do yeah. that. 
Um, so it's been, yeah. I mean, it's a dream come true that that's real. I used to, when the book was about to come out, I would just think I would like not really allow myself to imagine it, but sometimes it would slip through and I would think like, wouldn't it be amazing if this book had real world consequences? Mm. And it's, it's also fun because, you know, with, with, with its increased popularity, the very radical right has started to attack it. And it, it feels like it's doing its job when that happens. Mm. Uh, I've gotten like more crazy threats and stuff in my email. And I'm like, good. That means that people are reading it. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. I think it's um like writing is really hard and I'm writing this novel that's incredibly difficult to write. And so some days I'm like, you know what? If I died right now, I still did that. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> um, and, and I don't think I'll ever live it down. I think it's just like the coolest thing any writer could ever have happen. Um, well, even just for me, I think it's um, yeah, a fantastic book and I'm going to continue to read it and I'm going to send it to my mum as well to help understand <laughs> certain things um yeah so thanks so much for for talking to us again it's been such a great um thank you bottoming bottoming we are (laughs) (laughs) uh so that was fantastic garrett thank you so much for taking the time to uh speak with us again couldn't have appreciated it anymore and um Everyone should go and see Boy Race, the film. It's out in the UK, 8th of February. Yep. It's um, a Friday. Yep. Nicole Kidman. <gasps> Russell Crowe. Yes. Troy Sivan. Lucas Hedges. Yep. Joel Egerton. All the, all the babes. Yep. Uh, we'll be going to see her. Yes. For sure. Absolutely. We'll give you a full report. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that this episode, <laughs> hour and 600 minutes. Um <laughs> is enough but um, um but yeah yeah so thanks again for listening yeah love you all so much love you all you're doing amazing sweetie bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 